Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I looked at a data set where I had at least five direct reports where one didn't trust you, <laughs> right? And what's interesting, if you had zero not trust you, your trust level would be at the 63rd percentile. So what's, what's the effect of having one person not trust you? And the average trust level drops to the 32nd percentile. It basically halves with one person. Being a great leader starts with earning the trust of the people you lead. Most managers believe it's their job to give bad news. We found that 63% of the leaders have a preference for giving negative feedback and avoiding giving positive feedback, which is really screwy. And what we found is that there's an absolute clear correlation between trust and your preference for giving positive feedback versus negative. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Trust in leadership is essential to running an effective business. But how do you evaluate that trust? And is data the key to improving it? My guest today is Joe Folkman. He's the co-founder and president of leadership development consultancy, Zenger Folkman. For more than 30 years, Joe has been assessing and studying top leaders in a variety of industries and is a world-renowned psychometrician and leadership development expert. If you're not familiar with this unusual job title, a psychometrician creates psychological tests to measure employees' knowledge, skills, and abilities. Joe is also a prolific writer and has contributed to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Business Insider. His research has also been featured in Business Week, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Finally, Joe is the best-selling author and co-author of nine books on leadership and feedback, including his latest work, the trifecta of trust, the proven formula for building and restoring trust. Joe and I spoke about the foundational theory of his latest book, how the implementation of diversity and inclusion policies have had a positive effect on trust, and why you can actually please everyone. Let's enter the arena with Joe Folkman. What I've done and what I've been so lucky to, to have the access to is really millions of assessments of leaders' effectiveness. We generally do attitude surveys, but more importantly, uh, 360 assessments on leaders across the globe. So we've got this huge database, and that database provides all kinds of insights and 
I guess you could say, you know, there's been this revolution around artificial intelligence, but basically what it is is learning from data, right? And so that's what I've done. I've learned from data, and, and that's how I wrote the book. Once leaders get to a certain level, most of them are data-driven. And, you know, I think in this day and age, it's very tough to just use your gut or, you know, make big decisions based on just feelings. It has to be grounded in data. And, you know, the sheer scale of your research is, is pretty incredible. I believe 110,000 leaders and over a million and a half assessments. And how do you manage that? scale of research or using data and analytics within that? Or how do you draw your conclusions from such a big data set? What's nice is to have the data analytics now. And, and SPSS is a wonderful tool. And R is also another wonderful tool where you can manipulate that data and look for trends, look for kind of correlations and what's going on. And then slice and dice to your delight of data, you know, it's, I, I actually remember uh, in the olden days when I was first using SPSS and it was on the computer at the university, but basically you had to pay for your time. <laughs> and I'd run, a, I'd run analyses there and they would come out and they cost $100 and I would just, I'd sweat bullets because you never knew what would happen. Now, of course, that's all gone away and I can analyze till I die, so I'm good. Through your research, you've kind of boiled down three behaviors that really build and repair trust. Can you tell us what those are? I assume there are more behaviors that build trust, but what, what are the three components of that the way you see it? There's three things that really are highly correlated with trust and predict trust very well. Uh, number one, and I thought this one was the most important, was consistency doing what you say you're going to do. The second thing is expertise. <laughs> we trust experts. We trust people that have knowledge and information and insights that we don't have, right? And uh, the more knowledgeable you are, I mean, that helps you to be trusted. In today's world, I think we expect everyone to know their job and know how things work. And if they don't, that affects the trust you have in them. And the third thing is relationships. We, we trust people we like and we distrust people we don't like, right? And so those are the three that boiled up. What I found in the research is if, if a leader was just at the, the 60th percentile, now, you know, average is 50. So 60th percentile, it's just a little bit above average. On all three of those, their trust would be at the 80th percentile <laughs> from others. So that's, that's pretty good. Why does having the trust of your direct reports, your peers and other colleagues, how does that improve employee engagement and accelerate the performance of your organization? Let me just kind of give you some interesting uh, statistics on trust and, and why it's so important. If you ask people one question, and the question is, are most people trusted, right? <laughs> what, what would you say? Are, are most people trusted? No. Yes? No. Okay. No. <laughs> so if you ask that question in Norway, over 70% of the people say yes. Now, if you ask it in the U.S., it, it's below 40%. And if you ask it in uh, Colombia, 
it's less than 5%. If you correlate that statistic, the, the, the percentage of people that say, yeah, most people can be trusted with GDP, right? The correlation between those two variables is 0.83. <laughs> and so what's fascinating about it is the, the murder rate in Norway is about six chances in a million. The murder rate <laughs> in the U.S. is 42 chances in a million. And in Colombia, it's 333 in a million, right? <laughs> now, as you think about that and you think about gross domestic product and the fact that you can predict that with this one, this one stupid question, this, can most people be trusted? It really influences, and, and, and in your company, if there's a high level of trust, things run smoothly, decisions get made, stuff happens quickly. And if there's a low level of trust, there's a lot of bickering and arguments and people are always sort of thinking about ulterior motives. And what's the motive behind this decision? It's just like, I think it's the right decision. Oh, no, you're trying to get me, right? So there's huge implications around this. Uh, my research uh, a little bit on this was looking for the smallest behavior with the largest impact. And I think this, it's trust. Trust is a very small behavior, but the impact is enormous. When I'm sitting here thinking about those three things, you know, expertise, consistency, and building relationships, I think if you're the CEO of a, of a large company or, or maybe just a mid-sized company, I think like you have to have the expertise box almost checked by definition. You must know what you're doing to a degree. I mean, some people are more gifted than others, but I can see that a CEO or a senior manager or whoever could really take for granted the consistency and building relationships part. When you guys go in and you, you know, you kind of give this feedback and you say, hey, you know what, you got to improve consistency, you got to build relationships. What kind of path do you give them to doing that? What kind of framework helps people get better at those things? Because I think with all the stuff in everybody's inbox, you get sidetracked on that sometimes. What we tried to do was give people some low-hanging fruit in terms of improving these things. So let's talk about consistency first, because I think it's, it's interesting. I was with a group recently, and I said, anybody here you know, a dishonest, terrible person, <laughs> nobody raised their hand, you know. And yet, if I ask the question, when you're sitting in your office and, and, and a direct report comes in and they say, could you do this for me? And you say, yeah, I'll do that. No problem. And but then they leave and you forget about it. Now, is any, has that happened to anyone here? <laughs> it's like everybody, right? So this consistency, we think, you know, am I a bold faced liar? No. I'm not, I don't, I don't ever tell lies. Do you kind of say things that you don't follow through on? Do you promise things to people? When, when people come in and say, are we ever going to have a layoff? Oh, no, we're never going to do that, right? You write checks you cannot cash. And this isn't about the big stuff. This is about the little stuff. And what's interesting about when people come in and ask for something and you say yes, they never forget that and you never remember it, right? <laughs> it's just the nature. And I think the problem is we overpromise and underdeliver. If 90% of the people in your organization trust you and there's, you know, maybe a couple of vocal 
one-offs that are like, listen, this person's up to no good. They're not a great leader. How does that factor into your research and your recommendations? It's hard to sort of make it so that everybody is pleased. But I looked at a data set where I had at least five direct reports where one didn't trust you, (laughs) right? And what's interesting, if you had zero not trust you, your trust level would be at the 63rd percentile. Can't please all the people all the time. So what's, you know, what, what's the effect of having one person not trust you? And the average trust level drops to the 32nd percentile. It basically halves with one person. And you go, well, statistically, that doesn't make any sense. And it's the same things that happens when you, when you go to a car dealer and you read the reviews. <laughs> you, see, you see that one terrible review and you go, oh, <laughs> right? And people start asking themselves the question, well, if Bill doesn't trust them, him, why should I or her? And so we have to get out of our minds this idea that you, you can't please all the people all the time. You really have to, and especially with trust, you've got to build it. And, and when that one person is not on board and you've got to figure that out and you've got to unwrap that because that's that low rating. There's an absolute clear correlation between trust and engagement and trust and you know your, your ability to do a lot of other things. Your research must have gone bonkers during the pandemic. How did trust kind of rise and fall and maybe the volatility of that throughout the pandemic? Maybe you can comment on what happened, you know, as people kind of came to grips with the lockdown and the government getting involved and all all that stuff on organizations. It was interesting because uh, intuitively you'd say trust should be lower. I mean, we sent everybody home, right? And you're not seeing people on a daily basis, blah, blah, blah. We actually found that when we measured people in the pandemic and the trust between subordinates and leaders, that it went up two percentile points. Now, why is that? Well, we had this fun experiment. Can people be productive working from home? (laughs) What did you guys learn? It's so incredible because my partner... I remember calling him after two weeks and I said, we don't need an office. (laughs) We've been paying for this stupid office. We don't need an office because productivity was up. And and in fact, the statistics across almost every industry is productivity increased during the pandemic. And part of the reason was, is that in my office, I remember... I'd wonder what people were doing. I'd look out out of the door, you know, and I'd see people were busy. And I'd go, gosh, that's great. In the pandemic, I sent people an email. I didn't get an answer. And I'm like, oh, they're watching Netflix. But basically, I got used to it in the fact that they really were working hard and they were doing a good job. And, and so now here's the catch to this. Uh, overall, trust went up 2 percentile points. But when we looked at the worst leaders that wasn't true, right? That's where the distrust came. And that's what happened with, you know, everybody quitting is is that everybody didn't quit the good leaders, the great leaders, they quit the really poor leaders. It was such a fascinating thing to go through and just made you um, rethink 
all the norms of, of business life because uh, they're being reinvented and evolving as we speak, right? It does. So as you think about trust, and we just think about that relationship between you and your direct reports, that appeared to be, you know, it just, just the basics of people paid more attention and they were caring about their direct reports. Most showed a little bit more love and concern and gave people a break. That's why trust went up there. But basically, when you did the measures across the country, trust is down because institutions suffered from it and a lot of government agencies suffered from it. So it's a kind of a mixed message. Feedback is critical for all people in all stages of their careers. However, Joe thinks that some managers have lost sight of the correct ratio of positive versus negative feedback. The, the funny thing about feedback is that most managers believe it's their job, their responsibility, their obligation to give bad news, right? And so if, if we've measured people on their preference for giving positive or negative feedback, uh, we found that 63% of the leaders have a preference for giving negative feedback and avoiding giving positive feedback. Right. Which is really screwy. Right. So here's the problem. Most managers believe it's their job to make sure that nobody messes stuff up and nobody screws up. And so the tendency is, is to avoid positive because they, they somehow are feeling like they're giving the ranch away and give negative. And what we found is, is that, you know, there's an absolute clear correlation between trust and your preference for giving positive feedback versus negative. We really think that what happens, and if you want to be a really good manager, what you do is you need to convince your direct reports that you're on their side, that you want their best interests at heart. You cannot do that if the ratio a positive and a negative is out of whack. John Gottman, who's a marriage researcher, he did this fun research where he'd look at married couples and he'd look at the number of positive and negative interactions and then he'd predict divorce rates, <laughs> right? <laughs> and what he found is, is that if he'd get a couple in the room and they had a five to one ratio, five positives to one negative, they wouldn't get divorced. And if, if there was a preponderance of negative feedback, divorce was almost certain. And I don't think it needs to be five to one. I just think that people need to believe you're on their side, that you have their best interests at heart. And I think the problem is we've all grown up in a society where we got more negative feedback than positive, where it was corrective rather than encouraging. And if we can stop that, then feedback's going to be a lot different experience and it's going to be a much more effective. Now, remember, it was uh, Gottman found five to one, not five to zero. There's a place for corrective feedback. It actually sounds like it's pretty dangerous if you don't have a, a uniform approach based in research on exactly how to do it because you're creating a lot of risk for the organization. Is that correct? What's fascinating about that whole performance review is the managers hate to give it the employees hate to receive it. It's just a negative. You, you kind of go, what's the value of this thing? And part of it is is just 
just sort of having a sense that, you know, a lot of the managers believe that they need to say something negative. And, I, you know, I think that you don't. But if there's nothing negative there. and But the bigger thing would be to challenge people to, you know, you know, they're doing nothing wrong. Well, okay, challenge them to do some, doing more, doing something, you know, building a skill they don't have. That's That would be a great performance review. One thing I did want to ask you, Joe, was the approach to repairing lost trust. Let's say that you've, you've done a good job for a long period of time and the organization is just humming, you know, but something happens and, you know, you really blow it. Is approaching kind of a lost trust issue much different than kind of maintaining a good degree, like a good score in the trust department? How does that work? I think a lot of times it needs to start with an apology, a recognition that you did something wrong. And how many of us have not blown it? <laughs> you know, I mean, so it starts with there. But then, you know, if you think about these three things, relationships, consistency, and expertise, um, I, you know, I think it, one of the things you can do early on is really try to balance, you know, the whole issue of results with what people is going on in their lives, their, their individual issues. And too often leaders that, you know, have poor trust, it's all about the results. Get me the numbers, hit the, and, and you don't need to do this every day and bend over backwards for people, but bad things happen to people. And when it does, your support, your, your kind of helping them out is going to go a long ways. Second thing is, be a role model. So many managers think they don't need to do the things they ask others to do, right? For a lot of senior leaders to think the rules don't apply to them. And they, it's just, that's inconsistent. With expertise, what's interesting is, is during the pandemic, I think a lot of managers got in a position where they felt like they were supposed to make decisions around social distancing, around wearing masks. You know, they had no information or knowledge about that. But what you saw in that was sometime people, you know, making decisions and being upfront about it, even though they didn't have the competence or the knowledge. And it just hurt them. <laughs> and there's lots of really good examples of that. But those leaders that tapped on the shoulder of the expert to come, hey, you know more about this. And that, that actually built their expertise. So you don't need to be the world's expert, but you need to trust in and, and bring forward and, and recommend and support the world's experts. And that builds your expertise, right? And there's a really big lesson to learn in that is, is to kind of, uh, the problem is, is just because your position doesn't give you the right to make decisions that are outside of your boundaries, right? I've been kind of coaching CEOs in kind of communications for a really long time. And I always say, like, it takes a big ego to, to get to that job. But once you're there, you've got to know what you don't know. And you got to go around the room and ask people's opinion. And you have to be gifted enough to pick the right opinion. But you don't know everything. You just don't. Today, and rightfully so, where a lot of companies are embarking on their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, how does 
trust influence those initiatives within organizations? Have you done research on that? What's fascinating is most white males have learned what the right answer should be, right? And so what we found is that, that if you measure diversity or valuing diversity in others, the leaders in an organization in the bottom 25%, you know, bottom quartile, who were the worst, rated themselves in terms of valuing diversity at the 42nd percentile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's like, I know the right words to say. I, I just don't do it. You know, so what we think the problem is here and, and the difficulty is, is that, you know, our own perceptions of ourselves they don't follow through in terms of the behavior that we demonstrate. People don't know they're not valuing diversity. They think they are. They think they're okay. What else is fascinating about that is the people in the top quartile only rated themselves at the 57th percentile, right? So they, they didn't see themselves as all that great, and the bad ones didn't see those as all that good. The problem here is people really need an accurate assessment of how they're doing around this critical issue of valuing diversity. And the only way I know to give people an accurate assessment of their behavior is 360 degree feedback, where you know it's anonymous feedback from others so people feel confident they can tell people what's really going on. And then comparing that to, to high-level norms where you say, here's the performance we want out of people. What we found is, is that really helps people to show and value diversity is, number one, encouraging communication, encouraging people to talk back. And, and again, what's that skill? Listening, right? Uh, the second thing is, is, this is fascinating to me, asking for feedback. If you look at the performance at asking for feedback by age, you'll find that a younger person in the organization is always asking for feedback. They can't get enough feedback. But boy, by the time they're in their 50s, they're like, ah, been there, heard. <laughs> it's like, talk to the hand. <laughs> and it's the worst thing. And even when you ask for it, I mean, if it's if a senior manager goes to a meeting and says, how did that meeting go? And, you know, it's like I'm fishing for a compliment here. So give me one. I mean, and it, the better way to do it would be to say, what could I have done in that meeting to have uh, made it uh, more interesting, uh, get decisions made quicker, whatever. What could I have done to do better? So asking for feedback. And then the third thing that really helps is looking for opportunities to develop others. You know, everybody wants to be better off. They want to they want to learn a skill or do something new. I, the, it's a secret power to sort of really find development opportunities. And and by the way, you don't need to be their teacher. Just give them an assignment that lets them develop and and it'll do wonders. So, I always used to hear People, when I was growing up, say, trust your elders, right? But I know you had some research uh, recently that saw kind of the opposite of that. Why do you think trust is diminishing with age? Well, people remember. 
<laughs> we remember the, the problems. We remember the broken promises. We remember the fact that you said you'd do stuff and you didn't do it. You know, the, the, I mean, your, your scars are there. People can see them. The other thing is technology, right? You know, younger people tend to be better with technology. They tend to be quicker with it. And, and that impresses. So, again, that's expertise, right? And so I think that's done some things. And, again, they don't have as many scars. They haven't engaged as long. I think our, for young people, we, we want to believe that, you know, you'd think that with age comes wisdom and, and that people would value that. Maybe that's not the case, but we, we did see a, a big difference between older and younger leaders in terms of trust. But the, the trend is, and just the watch out if you're older, is, hey, people remember your failings, so be sure to apologize, right? People remember your mistakes, so be sure to move on, right? And then, you know, uh, the other thing is, it's what have you done for me today? You know, what have you done for me lately? You know, you're only as good as your latest book. Is that true? Okay. <laughs> Consistency, expertise, and strong relationships are the pillars of the trifecta of trust. This may seem intuitive, but it's also overwhelmingly backed up by data. Leaders need to be able to reassess how they act, walk the walk, and follow through with the promises they make to all of their stakeholders. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast and in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Joe for joining me on the show. Joe's good humor and intelligence make it obvious why he himself is trusted to advise top leaders and help make change happen within their companies. A perfect example of somebody practicing what they preach. This is Tom Ryan, and we'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.